If you increase client retention just by 5%, over two to three years, profits will go up 25 to 85%. Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner Khan. Today on episode 603 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm speaking with tax attorney turned consultant, Lynn Thomas. Lynn finds innovative and novel ways to create fiercely loyal clients and employees. If you want to build a stable, sustainable, and profitable business, you'll want to hear my discussion with Lynn. Stay with us to hear all the details. I believe everyone should have the opportunity to do what they love and get paid what they're worth. On my podcasts, I've interviewed hundreds of successful entrepreneurs, many of whom run consulting or coaching businesses. We've created a free ebook with 49 actionable steps from 49 of our popular episodes to help you smash the plateau in your business and your life. It includes tips to help you with your mindset, relationships, business development, and productivity. You can get your copy of 49 Tips to Smash Your Plateau at smashingtheplateau.com tips. That's smashingtheplateau.com tips. Now let's welcome Lynn Thomas. Lynn is a tax attorney turned consultant who finds innovative and novel ways to create fiercely loyal clients and employees. As employees uncover their untapped potential, they become deeply engaged and excel at delighting customers. Consequently, these businesses achieve higher levels of profits, growth, and retention. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you're a tax attorney turned consultant. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your career journey before we kind of get into the specifics about what you're doing now. Sure. I'll give you the, the shorter version, obviously. I started with Arthur Anderson um, after I left law school. I was a tax attorney and I enjoyed it. I liked the challenges and all. Um, I got some feedback and was all positive, but that I was more gregarious than a lot of the, uh, the other ones were and that. I had a lot more energy and could speak in front of the room and all. And but it helped me to see that there were other qualities about myself that I did not, I wasn't as aware of. So when I decided to leave Arthur Anderson, I went over to Bank of Boston as a private banker and I uh, was there for a couple of years and never lost a client, but I didn't understand why clients would leave and take good care of them. And then I was a recruited over to be a change agent, part of a bank that was changing. And there were 1,800 employees and they'd been going for about three or four months. And Already two employees had heart attacks. One died and one had, was on disability. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, there are people who don't know how to handle stress. So I went out to a uh, top name organization in Boston and negotiated their price to come in and educate everyone around about stress from 1500 to 500 which I thought was pretty great. So I go to the head of the, uh, the project and I said to them, well, they'll come in and they'll talk about stress. So we don't have any more people up in heart attacks or anything else. And it'll be like $500. And the gentleman said, no. And I said, no, it's 500 for everyone. And he said, no. And I said, I'll pay for it. And he said, no. So I turned around, walked out of the office, like my hair stood on the back of my neck. And I resigned the next day. Because I just was not going to work for an organization that didn't care about its, its customers or its employees or customers or anybody. And didn't care about the stress and wasn't willing 
and just, just didn't care. I guess I'm, I'm thankful that, I, that he was so blunt, like he wasn't trying to hide it. But I went without, I mean, I didn't have a plan. This wasn't a plan to become a consultant. It just happened in reaction, probably, not as much in response to that. But I felt, I felt um, I didn't want to put my efforts into an organization that really didn't care about people. So fundamentally, that's one thing that's real important to me is that work with organizations that do care about their employees because if they just see them as a cog in the machine. They're just there to get the best out of them and they don't get anything in return. They're not seen as vital or critical. They we would not work well together. But yeah, so that's that's how I got here. And, I try, and what I do, David, is I want to create the win-win-win, which is shareholders can win, customers can win, and employees can win. It's a different conversation. It's more difficult conversation than the typical, but it can happen. And it's far more interesting to get far more motivated employees and clients um, when you get them involved and engaged in the projects or something. But um, so that's what I wound up creating. I didn't know how to do it. I went to MIT Sloan Business School and did a lot of reading. I was hot and came across client retention. So I wound up deciding to focus on that. And so one of the reasons is because it can be quantified. And I like that coming from taxes and you know, having the code to go to and things. And I like the idea that it was involving human beings and people and it was able to be measured. Mm. And Lynn, how long had you been working when you had that trigger moment when you just suddenly quit your job? How many years in total? Yes. Eight. Yeah. And, and you said you didn't have a second thought about it. You just decided this is it. Yeah. It was like, you know, the, the straw that broke the panel's back. It's just, I was hired to be a change agent. I was hired to motivate people to change, but they weren't willing to give anything for people to be able to change or, or more, more predisposed to change if you could help them reduce their stress. So I didn't, I think, you know, part of it, I had a, um, I had a father who loved his work. So I grew up thinking work is fun like work is fun and it wasn't until I was like 13 that I um, was talking to a girlfriend and she was saying where her father didn't like his job I said why does he just quit and find another job and she says it's not that easy and I became aware that it's not that easy and my dad was really kind of unfortunate but he created that and so for me if work's not fun and challenging I'm gone and at that point when like I felt like my hands and my legs were both tied hot tied I wasn't going to continue. How could I genuinely try to motivate people to massively change if they're not willing to pay $500 towards reducing stress? I mean, that's not even a dollar person. It's like a 30 cents a person. So it was a smack in the face. But And I think because I had enough confidence in myself that I just knew that there was a way that had to be, that not all companies would act like this and have that dark underbelly, you know, which I saw. And um, I knew my dad didn't. I mean, that was one example, at least. I knew some other companies that were more people-focused and saw that as customer-centric wasn't quite around. But it, I look back on, I look back at it and I say it was pretty rash, but I don't think I had a choice. I could have put it off maybe a week if I could have stomached it. But, you know, it's just like, it's sort of like when something in me broke when I heard that. Yeah. And did you decide right then and there you were going to go into your own business? Was that the next step for you? No, I knew I had to leave that job. One gentleman offered to help me find a job. And I think I said, well, let me, let me just think about it and get back to you. And then in, in talking, there were some people I worked with at the bank that they wanted me to work with their husbands or other spouses at other companies. So I already had like three or four people that were approaching me 
that sort of built my confidence because I didn't even reach out and let them know that I was available. And they were, well, they knew I was gone. But so that was encouraging. And that was one was the advertising, one was in financial services. And the other one was actually, well, Gillette was the other one. So it was sort of really diverse. And at that time, it was really about how to change, how to see, you know, a phrase that's gotten overworked, but um, think outside the box. And we're all missing things all the time. The answers can be right in front of us. So that was relevant for really everybody. So did that launch your consulting career? Yeah. And then I built it through speaking engagements. I started Rotary Clubs and then Chambers of Commerce. And I got a notice from Klein that said, you're in the news. And it was um, uh, George Nordhaus out in California. And I called him up and I said, well, how do you know me? And I mean, these are some of these things people say, well, you don't do. I didn't know what I should or shouldn't do. So I just asked questions. And I told him what I did. He said, you know, I should probably hire you. I, I could use that. And I said, okay. So we talked about that. And then he said, oh, gosh, we're going to be in Boston in June. This was like March. He said, but my speaking, you know, I'm, I'm all full of speakers. I said, oh, that's okay. I'll come by and meet you. And then they had somebody who unfortunately had to pull out because his wife um, took a bad turn with cancer. So he asked if I could be a substitute keynote speaker. And that launched the whole insurance. I worked a lot in the PNC insurance industry. And that launched that where my phone didn't stop ringing for 18 months. And I was naive because I didn't, I was getting such good results. I didn't know in some ways, like I just hit a pot of gold, you know, and this isn't normal because I don't come from a consulting background. So I'm just thinking, well, I guess I'm doing a good job. And then when the phone stopped ringing, it was like, well, what do I do now? So I did a lot of speaking engagements with organizations and enjoyed that immensely. And, um, and that's how I want to really keep, you know, through, through the podcast and doing some uh, public speaking to keep uh, marketing my, uh, my consulting firm. Yeah. So many people, particularly when they, uh, when they go into consulting after having a, a fairly linear career as an employee, mm -hmm. they really struggle to figure out how to get the business going. They often invest in getting help with um, building their brand, building collateral material, creating content, lots of marketing, and sometimes it works. Frequently, it doesn't work so well. And it sounds like your business evolved with some planning, but also a lot of um, unexpected opportunities that you pursued when they came about. Well said, yeah. And I also had my, my dear father, I was working on a logo for like two months and he said, Lynn, forget about the blankety blank logo. Just get out there and get clients. So I looked back and at the logo, I remember when it was reduced down to the size to get on the business card, all the detail that was in it wasn't even visible. And I was like, oh gosh, nobody had said, you know, if it's this, if it's this size, and when you reduce it down, you're not going to see that detail. So um, I, I'll hear that periodically if I'm getting like perfectionistic on something. It's like, Lynn, just move. So um, get out and sell. Yeah, just get out and sell. Just get out and sell. <laughs> and for me, it's fun to sell because I know if I can't, you know, I, I offer everybody my all my clients a hundred to three hundred percent guaranteed um, return on their investment within um, one to two years, and if not, we refund their money. I started this; I think it was like seventeen years ago. There are opportunities that I pass because I cannot deliver on it, or I'll pass it over to another consultant, somebody else who's more fit. And I need to really deeply understand it and what they want. And then we, we get down to metrics, like, where are you now? Where do you want to be? And then they can decide whatever they want to measure. And people say, well, how can you do that? It's like, 
I'm a tax attorney. And bottom line, I'm a tax attorney. I know what improvements and what changes are going to impact the bottom line because retention is not something that's measured on financials. There's no number that says retention. It's you have to actually know if you want to do it exact, your client count, or if it's by policies or if it's by services or something, you have to decide what's a client and they have some way to capture that at the beginning and end of the year. And I remember a very large insurance company had spent they had like 350 million policyholders, I think, and they wind up losing about 20% of them. And they, through the acquisition, they increased it by 21%. That's an expensive 10% increase in your clients. I mean, it's to keep clients, you know, companies should be able to keep all the 5% of their clients and employees every year. You know, there's reasons you can't. There's some people move on, clients will, will die, they don't need your services anymore, whatever. If you're more than 5% are leaving, there's something wrong. And um, Boston College did a study of my um, marketing course, did a study of my business, and they were surprised that I went out to like, my 10 best clients at that point. And nine of them didn't know they had a, a client retention problem because they thought it was acceptable to lose 10% of your clients or 12%. I'm like, it's not, I mean, it's mediocre. It's not, to me, it's not acceptable. I mean, I want you to be stellar. I want you to be great. You've got to be five, five percent or higher. You have USAA is 97%. I mean, that's like stellar. So you can get to 3%, but 5% is okay. 7% is, well, you can improve, but giving up more than that, it's so expensive to replace clients. And we're finding out now, especially with COVID with employees, that you want to keep them. And the first year client is so much more expensive to serve and is more likely to leave than a client who's been with you. You know, it's like, there's this great study, which not many people know about, that only 2% of clients leave any organization that they've been with uh, for seven years. So I'll say to clients, so you, what's your plan to keep them for seven years? And we'll say, why? And I'll say that. I'll say, okay. And they'll say, well, we don't have one. I said, well, let's create one. Because the goal is, if you want to keep them just one year, you know, do what you do, and you'll keep some, you know, you know those are the other ones will leave. But many companies lose 10 to 15% of their clients every year. So in five years, you're replacing half of your clients. For now, employees are leaving. I mean, it's just so... Yeah, the disruption is very expensive. And you're right. The disruption is not measured on the financials. No, it's not. It doesn't show up. You know, it would be, except for employees, it's 300 500% of the current employee's compensation to recruit, to attract, recruit, train, and get the employee up to the person who's uh, up to the level of the person who's leaving. So if you have to spend 300 to 500% more, what could you do to keep them? And, you know, what I want to say to you, what I want the audience to know is that if you're wanting to have to base your uh, business on relationships, then you have to act relationally. And that's why you don't act, offer somebody, you know, I'll give you $20,000 because you treat them as transactionally. You know, what is it that you want that will help, help you want to stay working here? How can I help you develop your skills? How can I help you make sure that three, five, seven years from now, you will have a job because so much is changing. None of us really know. What do you need from me? What do I need to offer you that I can expect you to stay for the next two to three years or whatever they're asking. And then just be quiet and watch what what they say, how they respond and, you know, dig under their initial response. So if it's like, oh, you need to be really good to me. Well, that tells me nothing. (laughs) So being good to you means what? You need to appreciate me. Okay. And, And how does appreciation for you look like? Well, I'd like you to let me know 
at least once a week, very specific, uh, when I do something really well. Because most clients tell me, clients of my clients say is that they, I'll hear about the 2% I don't do well, not the 98% I do do well. So I want to get, I want to be appreciated that, but I don't want to be recognized, which is in front of other people because that'll get me embarrassed. And you recognize me and that gets me embarrassed and I don't like that. Oh, so what you're saying, one thing I need to do is to appreciate you, which is just to you, at least once a week and catch you doing something well. Yes. Okay. So that's one aspect. So then we go on more. So having a conversation with each employee, like customizing the retention. Because after COVID, none of us went through COVID the same and none of us are coming out the same. So to have one size fits all or try that is just not going to work. Yeah. Lynn, how much does it depend on what kind of industry the company is in or, or their business model in terms of client retention? It depends a lot. I mean, if you if your clients are really, you, you want to retain them for a period of time, so it's professional services, your doctors, dentists, attorneys, accountants, financial planners, et cetera, wealth management, those clients will tend to stay longer and not turn over as quickly. But if you're talking about like CVS versus Walgreens, I'm not sure there's really loyalty at play there. So if it's just... I'm mostly B2B, and those tend to be a little bit longer. I, I have worked with CBS and um, you know, some the Hyatts and the Sheridans. And for the convention business, there is a correlation with their experience that they had before and the likelihood will come back, where with um, C2C, um, it's, it's not really there. But it's the nature of the business, and it's also the nature of the company, that if the company is client-focused and employee-focused, they will just tend to keep keep them longer because that's where they're focused. And that's what I, that this day and age, especially with millennials and Gen Z's, they want to have a purpose and meaning to what they do. They're not as financially oriented as previous generations. As they look out in the world and they see so many issues and problems, they want to be part of the solution. And those are the employees that are tech savvy, that are agile, that are resilient, that you can't overwhelm. I mean, I've been in situations giving them work and just putting so much work on their desk they've never said stop they've never said too much i'll get to it i'll get to it this week you know and they do they have a phenomenal capacity but they have they like to have a balanced life you know when they're done they'll leave at four or three they won't stay to five because you're supposed to you know i think they looked at they looked at us as their parents or whatever and and said you know you guys worked like that arthur anderson i work during tax time you know 12 15 hours a day and like why and because that's what I was expecting. It didn't have to be that way. So I think they're more balanced. They've also lived through some where are old enough to remember 9-11 themselves, but everyone, the Great Recession and now uh, COVID. So you can see that there's been, there's issues and problems in the world that are not being solved and are being exacerbated. And uh, they want to be part of that solution because looking ahead to their children and grandchildren, et cetera, make sure there's a world here that we can all survive in. So connecting meaning to them for their job is really, is, is very important to them. Lynn, how do you describe who your ideal client is? It's usually in the professional services. It can also uh, be like banks, uh, the whole financial service industry a lot, but uh, they, they have a relationship that they're willing to invest in to keep long-term. So investment bankers I also work with. And the best ones obviously are where they, extreme humanism is Tom Peters' phrase, which I love. and. He said, now's not a time to focus on your employees. You don't get it because you best be focused on them, their well-being, their, them taking care of themselves. That's why you see some companies, you know, just taking, offering the whole company a week off 
because recognizing that the well-being of people has just um, been smashed with COVID. And, you know, 36% of employees during COVID quit without another job. So there was a real lack of understanding at senior management level or management level of how difficult it really was for a lot of people to manage everything with COVID and they didn't have a job. It's just like they just couldn't tolerate whatever was being asked of them. So, and I can always, I can tell you that if, when I start with a client, I'll interview some top clients at the 20% that generate percent of the revenue, some top employees and management, senior management. And the employees are like the best of the front line because they will solve most of the problems because they interact with the clients. And their perceptions and the client's perceptions are quite close to each other. And senior manager managements, there's a bigger gap. So that's where I look at the gaps and it's like, okay, well, you think they come for ABC, but they say they come for B, D, and E. So if B, D, and E rules, if these are the 20% of the clients that generate 80% of your revenue, with all due respect, uh, what they say is important, I truly believe is what your company is delivering and that's what you need to, to do. And I understand you have a different opinion and because they generate that much revenue, that is where I would suggest and recommend that you focus your efforts because the numbers don't lie. No, they don't lie. They don't lie. And it, it's uh, 20%, 80, sometimes 30, 70, but mostly 20, 80 is it's like right on that, David. It just you focus on those clients. You know, what I love also about retention is that if you increase client retention just by 5%, it's not that hard for some companies to do because they haven't been focused on it. Over two to three years, profits will go up to go up 25 to 85%. You know, it's really stunning. But it's incredible leverage. It's incredible leverage. And then if you zero in more and you focus on just those the 20, let's say eight clients, the 20% that generate 8% in revenue, it could just take off. But those say, well, what about the other clients? It's like you're spending half your time generating 5% of your revenue, like 50% of your time. And understand your employees are really comfortable working with, I'll call them ABC clients because that's every other client. But your eight clients, if they're saying you're a little overpriced and they're only getting 20% of your time because every phone call is equal when it comes in or every person is more or less equal and you're not changing that, then they may have a point. If they're reducing 80% of your revenue, they should at least get 50% of your time, I think, at least. And they'll say, well, that's a, that's a valid point. And it's just, I help them to look at their client like a lifetime revenue stream. That's what a client is. It's just not one year. If you look at a revenue stream, what they can, what they will buy, let's say over a five-year period, 10-year period, and then the referrals they could bring in and the additional purchases they could make. I mean, it's a huge amount of money. And I think companies will say, well, you know, they were only a $2,000 client. It's like, oh, 2000 this year, 2000 next year. Let's say 10 year clients, that's 20,000. And let's say they brought in two or three referrals. Let's say two referrals. So now you're up to 60,000. So it's not a 2000, it's a $60,000 client. No, I never thought of it that way. You know, so a few dollars here, a few dollars there. Pretty soon we're talking about real money. Yeah. And I don't know why people don't look at it that way. I mean, that's the way I look at businesses. And it's the way I looked at it when I was at Bank of Boston in private banking. And my cl- colleagues would lose clients. And I'd say, how could you let him leave? Oh, he's a jerk or said something like this. Like, he's a client. So what? He gets to be a jerk or she gets to be a jerk. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm the one, at least for me, it helped a certain standard that I've got to act, not act, but be highly professional, et cetera. And the client wants to get upset. 
as long as they don't go to profanity, you know, fine. And if they go to profanity, I'll say, you know, your words are getting in the way. Can we pick this conversation up at another time? And usually that just sells them right down. But yeah, it's, it's I mean, Lance Lessinger um, out of Harvard, he was giving a presentation and he said, he said, you always want your parents to be impressed by you. He said, so I was giving a presentation, a large audience like this down in New York City. And my father, who was an upholsterer, came and he says, I'm running up and down the aisle saying, who are your best customers? Find out what they want and find a way to give it to them profitably. And he says, and they're applauding and they're all saying, who are your best customers? What is it they want? And find a way to give it to them profitably. And he said, you know, I was perspiring and sweating and everything. And he said, everyone gave me a standing ovation. It was great. He said, but I was looking at my dad and I, and I went down and I said, so what do you think? He says, um, they really like you. He said, yeah, but what do you think? He says, is it really true? They don't know who their best customers are, what they want, and they don't know how to deliver to them profitably. He said, yeah, it's true. They don't. He goes, oh my gosh. He says, I don't get it this country. I don't get it. You should, you should kiss the ground every day in America is they can run businesses, run big, big businesses and not know who the customers are, what they want and give to them profitably. And it's, you can see as an upholster, his mindset, of course, his was exacting, you know, what he, what he was doing. But the idea, and, it, and it, it is like, you don't know who, what your customers want? Who are you talking to all day? And senior management doesn't talk to customers or clients. So they've lost touch. Yeah, it's mind boggling and um, it's so sensible. Uh, you have years of experience doing this and, and helping companies. Lynn, how can people learn more about what you do, um, access any resources you may have, or get in touch with you? Oh, sure. Yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best. Uh, Lynn Thomas at uh, LinkedIn. And then my website is just Thomas Consulting and Wins at the NWINS.com. And yeah, and I'm happy to have, you know, under half an hour conversation really with anybody in just help them, especially especially during COVID and the challenges that's presented, how to bring employees back safely, um, how to speak with them, how to, how to make really good human connections so people will stay as people are feeling very disconnected from so many aspects of their lives. So, but I'd be happy to offer that to anybody. Great. And, and it's really important right now. Lynn, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Smashing the Plateau and, and share just some snippets of your vast experience helping companies do a better job. My guest today has been the CEO of Thomas Consulting, Lynn Thomas. Thank you again, Lynn, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, David. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, You'll find a summary of each episode, along with the links we mentioned on the show. Today, we learned how you can build a stable, sustainable, and profitable business through client loyalty. I believe everyone should have the opportunity to do what they love and get paid what they're worth. On my podcast, I've interviewed hundreds of successful entrepreneurs, many of whom run consulting or coaching businesses. We've created a free ebook with 49 actionable steps from 49 of our popular episodes to help you smash the plateau in your business and your life. It includes tips to help you with your mindset, relationships, business development, and productivity. You can get your copy of 49 tips to smash your plateau at smashingtheplateau.com tips. That's smashingtheplateau.com tips. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.